Welcome to a very special edition of The Third Wheel, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. Regular listeners will have been expecting podcast hosts Tim Stutt and Mel Debenham, but this is a very special takeover edition by our employment and industrial relations team. My name is Nerida Jessup and I'm a partner in the HSF Employment, Industrial Relations and Safety team and I am joined by my trusty sidekick, Drew Pearson, another partner from our team. Today we will be discussing building respectful workplace cultures where people are empowered to speak up, share ideas and challenge each other productively. Which leads me to our expert guest. Brock Bastian is a professor in the School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. He is trained as a social psychologist and his research seeks to understand the various social and cultural factors that impact decision-making and well-being. Broadly, Brock's research seeks to understand the link between ethical behaviour and personal well-being and why this link is critical to meaning and fulfilment in life. Brock completed his PhD in 2007 and since then he has published more than 100 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters. His work has been featured in outlets such as The Economist, The New Yorker, Time, New Scientist, Scientific American, Harvard Business Review and The Huffington Post, among many others. His innovative approach to research has been acknowledged with the Wigner Theoretical Innovation Prize and his contribution to psychology has been recognised by the Australian Psychological Society and Society of Australasian Social Psychologists Early Career Researcher Awards. Brock's research has been supported by over $2 million in research funding. Brock is not only passionate about building scientific knowledge, but also about communicating that knowledge. He has written for popular press outlets such as The Conversation, delivered popular talks such as TEDx St Kilda, the Ethics Centre Sydney and Workplace Wellbeing Festival, and appeared on television programs such as Insight and The Today Show and radio shows such as The Minefield and All in the Mind. His first book, The Other Side of Happiness, was published in January 2018. Brock, together with David Burrows, a past guest on one of our podcasts, has recently developed a program called Rethink, uh, which helps uplift capabilities in challenges, change and leadership. So, Brock, the podcast usually begins with asking our guests for a personal reflection on why ESG is important and what does it mean to you? But instead, I'm going to ask you a different question. I really wanted to pick up on some of those discussions that we had with David Burroughs recently, who is the Chief Mental Health Officer at Westpac. I kicked off our podcast discussion by asking David, why is work good for our mental health? Now, David gave a great answer. He spoke to the benefit, benefits of work for our mental health, not just in providing us with a paycheck, but in really addressing some of those higher elements of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He spoke to the idea of flow, mastery and meaning, which we derive from our work, or as David refers to it, good work. I... I note in your book, The Other Side of Happiness, you say pleasure and pain are only understood in relation to their opposites. So whether you're lying on a beach or enjoying time with friends, all of these experiences lose any sense of pleasure if they're not contrasted with something else, most commonly work of some kind. So while I'm sure you'd agree with David's views of why work is good for your mental health, I just wanted to ask you, is there anything that you would have to add to his answer? Why do you think work is good for our mental health? Thanks, Narita. Well, yes, it's a. Um, I mean, I think I think 
probably the, the the thing that I would add in there is, and and perhaps it's something that we often miss. Um, you, you know, it, it is getting th those sorts of resources going. You know, self actualization through Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or feeling like you're purposefully engaged, or in a, you know, in, engaged with some sort of meaningful pursuit. Um, all of these things tend to be leveraged to some degree when we've got to push against something. We have something that sort of engages us in that way. Uh, you know, yes, lying on a beach and, uh, you know, having those sort of comfortable experiences is nice and they, they are contrasted with work. Um, but often we get, you know, again, it's hard to get the sort of fulfilment that you might want from life just lying on a beach. And often that's exactly the reason why work is actually quite purposeful for people. I actually started my career working in the unemployment sector uh, as a psychologist and, uh, you know, I saw long term unemployed people and it's certainly not a good place to be. People want to be meaningfully engaged and, and that often does mean um, that there is something that, that challenges us in that situation, something that actually requires us, us to, I suppose, push against that. And obviously there's a certain amount of that and we're certainly hearing some, uh, you know, I think some media around the moment about when that can become too much, of course, as well. Um, so it's important to kind of find the right balance. But I think also recognising that there's, you know, some some effort and some something, you know, some difficulty sometimes is exactly what actually engages those sorts of benefits for us. And I love, I love that answer. Andrew, I, I'm laughing because I think we had lunch recently where you laughed at me where I said I couldn't lie on a beach for the rest of my life, but I, <laughs> I feel like I've been validated here. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I think we all joke that if you won Lotto, you know, yeah. would you stop work? And I think everyone immediately jumps to yes yeah. and then start coming up with some kind of variant on lying on the lying on the beach, but then, you know, volunteering or yeah. sitting on a couple of boards and whatever to just kind of maintain that that sense yeah. of work. And yeah. obviously yeah. It, it feeds into a much deeper psychological point. Yeah. Um, and Brooke, talking about people who are in work and really over the last couple of years, we've seen more and more distressing stories coming out around bullying, harassment, violence in workplaces, mm -hmm. um, and then the inadequate response from management. Um, yeah. And this is a this has come through across all all sorts of workplaces, whether it's a you know the High Court of Australia, corporates, schools, government, everything in between. Um, and a lot of the people that will be listening to us today and our clients and the, the type of people that you work with are obviously trying to shift the needle on this space and really make yeah. sure that when people are at work, it it's safe and um, that there's not this kind of hollowness felt after, you know, um, something, you know, quite often terrible has happened. Yeah. Are, there, are you seeing any bright spots here? Have you seen organisations that have managed to really buck that that trend, um, or is it just you know kind of good people trying to do good things, and sometimes they get lucky? Well, I think I think certainly when you're talking around you know the the, the conduct and the bullying and harassment and those sorts of issues that people are experiencing, um, I think organisations that are trying to take a, a more nuanced and early intervention or prevention focus on on the, on that are the ones that are going to be doing it well. Again, when when you you know, when we're seeing those sorts of things arise, um, often our understanding of the, the factors that sit in behind that, the, the sorts of, 
I, I guess, influences on people, which can lead to to conduct issues. Um, I think when we when we get into that space as well, it's very very easy to sort of bring a fairly moralised perspective to it all, which I think actually shuts down the really important conversations that people need to have around well, why is this happening and how how do we get here, and what are the sorts of things we actually need to address. So, I, I mean, I certainly think that there's you know, and particularly dealing with the last few years. Um, this increased focus on psychosocial risk and addressing that has been really promising and, and I think great to see as a social psychologist understanding again those early intervention and background contributing factors is really important, um, you know, from my perspective. Um, but I think some of those issues where we're still a little way down the, um, the road on, you know, such as issues that have those sorts of ethical moral consequences for people around conduct, uh, around ethical and moral decision making in the workplace. Um, and, and these are the ones which we I think we, we sometimes struggle to get upstream on because of that moralised response that we have. And of course, stepping outside of that or stepping away from that can be quite tricky as well, because we don't want to, um, we want people to be responsible for their behaviour. Um, but I do think that those organisations that are really taking that nuanced view on it and, and, and try to get upstream are the ones that are doing it well. Thanks, Brock. And that's one of the, the themes I wanted to pick up on too. So I, 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 my practice is, is focused on safety and one of the key issues that we're dealing with with uh, employers at the moment is how to reduce the risk of work on uh, psychological health and safety. Um, and one of the themes of your work, if I can be fairly simplistic about it, is that you need to feel pain in order to experience pleasure. And some of what we might describe as fairly unpleasant features of work. So yeah. in, 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 I guess, high-performing uh, workplaces, stress, uh, organisational change, high job demands, pressure, some of those things have, have been recognised in that, that uh, safety guidance which you've referred to as hazards to our hazards yeah. and risks to our psychological safety. And employers are required to manage those risks through a safety lens now. So... Yeah. If it's the case that pleasure exists at the margins of those unpleasant experiences, how does that reconcile with the need for employers to proactively manage those risks, which might also pose a, a risk to psychological health? I think it feels like you've asked me a fairly curly question there in some sort of uh, some sort of way. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think first, just to distinguish from the last, you know, the last um, comment I made, I, I mean, I certainly don't think or I don't think the sorts of things that perhaps provide us with some of those challenges in work are, are, are conduct, interpersonal con conduct issues. I don't think that, you know, the way letting those get out of hand or even the stress associated with those are things that are different kettle of fish. But um I guess the uh, again the idea that there should be uh, I mean I mean managing those risks is absolutely important and managing stress etc for people in their work is absolutely critical um, but of course there is that there is that sort of um, you know inverted U shaped curve when it comes to stress when it comes to role demands when it comes to the sorts of factors that can impact on people um, you know so take for example um, you know when when we look at role demands. You know, it's good to have some demand in your role. Um, it's not good to have no demands. Being under-engaged is actually about as bad as being over, you know, overloaded. So we need some of that. We need to feel some stress in our work in order to feel like it's meaningful or, or we're engaged in it. And I think helping people to understand how to do that well and how to providing people with the tools to be able to manage those aspects and those elements of their work well 
uh, is, is absolutely critical for leveraging some of that value that is there in the way that the work is structured. Um, but of course, that doesn't mean that, you know, that they're, they're, it does go the other way. And so when there's too much of that, when we feel overwhelmed, um, when we go from feeling that, that state of feeling challenged in our work to feeling threatened and overwhelmed by it, I mean, we actually know there's a, there's a, a you know, a very different physiological response to that. We, you know, we, we when we're in a, a state of threat, we're, we're releasing cortisol, we're in a state of challenge, we're releasing adrenaline, um, the latter being positive and good for performance. Um, so we, you know, having those resources that we need is what tips the balance um, from from threat to challenge. Feeling we've actually got the the resources that we need to meet the demands of our roles is is what allows us to feel challenged and engaged. Um, you know, even even that state of flow um, that that you mentioned before. All of those things I think contribute to 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 good work. But then you know, when it goes past and 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 people no longer feel they've got those resources, they're not being provided with those resources, or the the demands are so much that you know, no matter how many resources you you know you provide me, I'm not going to still be able to manage it all. I think that's where it starts to get dangerous, and that's the sorts of risks that that, that you know people are needing to to um to manage. I guess I'll, the only other thing I would say about that is is also you know just as in much as as knowing how to manage some of you know respond well to some of the discomfort in work that we sometimes experience and see it as, as sometimes an opportunity for for meaning for being meaningfully engaged in our roles. I think also um, knowing how to deal with that discomfort interpersonally is absolutely critical and kind of feeds back to the, the previous point because you know we do need to know how to have those conversations with people around issues at work. Um, early and preventatively sometimes those conversations can be awkward in fact any i think any valuable conversation is actually often uncomfortable um, because it's often dealing with content which you know needs to challenge us a little bit um, so i think providing people with the tools to know how to do that well uh, is absolutely critical to managing some of those risks as well again early and preventatively and picking up on that Brock, you know obviously a lot of discussions around workplace behaviour involve that challenge, you know, it's some, it, a lot of the time there are two different perspectives and two different lived experiences, obviously. Um, and for a lot of the, the directors of our clients, they kind of sometimes find out about the issues after they've, they've occurred and they're scratching their heads thinking, you know, we feel like we've done everything we could to set up a, an environment where these discussions can um, it be had, but obviously um, it it hasn't been successful. And I was recently reading Rachel Doyle's book, um, which looked in detail at the High Court of Australia's recent um, issues with with Dyson Hayden, and she kind of talks about the power imbalance. Um, and yeah. a lot of the stories there there is an inherent power imbalance when we're dealing with workplace behaviour issues. Yeah. And in Japan, for example, there's a, a concept of power harassment. Yep. Um, and so I'm, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts around how power imbalances feed into this concept of keeping people challenged, uh, but providing a supportive place for them to actually work through these issues before you obviously get to? Mm the place where no one wants to be. Interesting. Again, I feel like that's a, a, a sort of a, a tricky question to about power and challenge all at the same time. But um, I mean, let me, let me maybe respond to the power one, because I think that um, there's it, it, sort of an interesting perspective on that, which I don't think gets enough airplay. I, I mean, what 
I suppose the first thing to note there is that it's you know power is not a personality attribute. It's a it's 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 a situational attribute. It's a, it's a, a situation that people are in. Um, and and again, social psychologists have studied this, putting people in positions of power. Again, anybody putting people in positions of power actually has some impacts on the way that we respond to other people around us. Um, people in positions of power are less likely to take other people's perspectives. It reduces our capacity or our, or our tendency to actually perspective take, meaning empathy. Um, you know, we don't have as much of it when we're in a position of power. Um, that 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 situational factor actually impacts on it. We're also more likely to sometimes, you know, in subtle ways, um, objectify the people in terms of how they can fit into and, and contribute to our wants or our needs. Now, understanding, often we look at that and we think, well, people, you know, people need to stop abusing their positions of power. And that's absolutely true. And that obviously does happen. And I think Rachel Doyle's book's a great example of, I think, exactly that problem where people have mm -hmm. abused that. Um, but we also need to understand, just in the same way that we've been looking at unconscious bias for quite a long time, you know, uh, around inclusion and diversity, we've got to recognise that there, there, there are these other factors. Of course, another one is, you know, the norms in a workplace. Um, you know, there, there are, there are we, we know that culture is incredibly important in terms of determining what people think is acceptable and appropriate behaviour. And though, you know, sometimes those cultures can uh, lead people to step over perhaps lines uh, where they, they they perhaps aren't as quite as cognizant of the fact that they're doing so because it seems to be normative, it seems to be okay. I, I you know I think we see this in other ethical contexts. Um, I think the Banking Royal Commission showed a great example of where people were stepping over ethical lines in order to meet certain demands, and there was a culture of enabling that. And of course, culture was mentioned I think by Hayne 471 times in that report. <laughs> So we know that culture is really critical around these sorts of ethical uh, issues, including these conduct issues. And so we do need to, you know, I mean, there are definitely, um, you know, people who abuse positions of power out there. Um, there are people who perhaps, you know, turn up to work and have some malicious intent in terms of how they treat others. But I would suggest that most often that's not the case. I don't, I don't think, I think most often people don't wake up and think, who am I going to bully? harass and discriminate against today, you know. Yeah. Most often it starts far earlier than that. It, it becomes acceptable behaviour. Our, our sort of, um, you know, our alarm systems turn off and, we, and we, we're not realising. And, and so that, that, that just, I think, it highlights the absolute importance of taking that early intervention approach. But at the same time, you know, it's not to then say, well, you know, people in low power need to be telling people in high power that, 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 you know, trying to remind them of their responsibilities, because that's also quite a difficult ask as well. So it's not, it's certainly not to throw the, the, the ball back in that direction, but it is to start to, I, I think, identify that these are factors playing into it. And we're often, we're often viewing power as, I think, something that people abuse rather than a situation that actually changes how people see the world sometimes. Thanks, Brock. I think one of the issues with power um, is in the reporting space. So mm. organisations are grappling with reporting culture from a safety perspective for a long time uh, in relation to physical hazards and risks as well as now psychological hazards and risks and, and these conduct issues. Um, we understand that you, you kind of, you don't know what you don't know and an absence of reporting is of course not something that you can take comfort from if you're trying to drive a safe culture. So 
applying that thinking to to this space, what are the things that you would expect to see in organisations, leadership and individual workers in an organisation that would support a psychologically safe culture where workers are encouraged to speak up? Yeah. And if you're in management or you're sitting on a board, when would you be satisfied that you had a proper line of sight of these issues? Well, I mean, to the last part of your question, I think that's a really hard, that's a really hard thing to answer, isn't it? Because, you you know, you, as you said, you don't know what you don't know. Um, I guess all you can do is to continue to create the right environment to, to, to make sure or to try and support the processes that you trust would perhaps, you know, increase the visibility of this for you. Um, but I think, I think again, you know, creating that environment um, where people do feel safe to speak up, that means that, you know, people, firstly, there is that, that, that tendency or that culture of, of openness and honesty um, where people feel that they can do that. I, I think, you know, you have to have good, you have to be building decent relationships. Um, and that, that, that is, you know, that does go for managers, for example. I mean, you need to know that the people in your team can actually uh, raise issues with you if you have stepped over a line. You know, that, that needs to come up to you uh, in that direction and you need to work as hard as you can to make sure that you're the kind of person that people feel that they can actually raise those issues with because if you're not, then you're blind. Um, and if you're blind, then you don't know what you don't know, right? Until it sort of blows up in your face and you go, gee, I didn't realise that I was behaving, you know, in, in that way. Or, or I mean, maybe there's some who do know that, but I think there are many who probably don't. So you need to be really open to that feedback. And that's obviously quite difficult. It's a really uncomfortable conversation for someone to say, look, I feel uncomfortable about the way you're managing our meetings. I mean, that's a really hard conversation. Um, but I mean, if you're not having that conversation, then you're not, you know, you're not, you're not dealing with it early. Um, so you really got to empower people. And I think, man, I think leaders have got to be able to bring into that space that that's, you know, I mean, almost role model, um, that, that openness, um, give people examples of, of how, you know, a good example, well, a good way of putting it is, you know, leaders often say, look, my door is always open, you know, but no one really knows what's going to happen when you walk in that door, you know, and raise that really sensitive issue. Um, so, so sometimes we've actually got to give people examples and really work hard to make sure that they know that we can respond to that kind of feedback, you know, as leaders, um, that, that, that that can be done, you know, well and safely, um, and to really reassure people of that. And and I guess I guess in that sense, um, you know, what you want to know if you're sitting at the top of an organisation is that, that that communication flow, that, that information flow around really sensitive issues is going is, is coming from the bottom up. Um, and, and that there's a there's a conduit for that. And 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 I think you know that's got to be sometimes in a formal way. People need a formal process that protects them if things have gone too far. That's absolutely critical. But you hope that the prior to that there's able to be those more informal conversations um, around navigating you know, interpersonal conflict in the workplace um, successfully and productively. You'd hope that can happen. But it is really difficult. It is really difficult. It's a big ask on a lot of people to be able to do that well, I think. And, Brock, tying together possibly a couple of the last last couple of points that you've made, the, the concept of power as a situation, I think, is, you know, it's quite mind-blowing for me because it really does change your mindset as to how you you approach it when um kind of unconscious bias really came to the forefront and we started seeing organizations training you know their leaders and also 
um, kind of all employees on unconscious bias and the impact it has on your decision making, how you manage teams, all those types of things. Um, there was a lot of, you know, kind of work that went into those trainings. Um, if you're a leader and you're trying to um, kind of get to a place where your team do feel comfortable to come and talk to you about these issues and you don't want it to just be that tertiary response of reporting, what are a couple of kind of basic things that you could do to encourage that style of behaviour? Yeah, I mean, I guess again, um, I mean, certainly giving people evidence, on the ground evidence that, you know, here's a time when I respond to this well, here's what I expect from you, here's what I want you to do. I mean, make it concrete, make it absolutely clear to people that that's what you're asking for. Um, and and I think, you know, demonstrating your capacity to, to manage those situations well, to, to you know, to be, to, to, to remain safe in, in those situations. And that, I think that requires, Bringing, I mean, a nice, a nice term that I, I think is sometimes used in this space is this notion of confident humility. You know, it, that 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 ability to actually bring a, a certain amount of humility to the way that we do our roles, um, which is not to say that we're not. You know, sometimes people think, well, if you know, there's a fear of being wrong or to be, I, I you know, I mean, it's, it, it, there's a fear of people perhaps identifying things that we've missed, or particularly in the ethical space or the conduct space. I mean, it's just, it's really tricky territory, but. I think that idea, look, I could get a few, I, I can get some things wrong. I can make some mistakes. I can be aware that I'm going to do that. You know, we talk about that in the psychological safety space in terms of making some mistakes around process. But I think applying that psychological safety concept to building a culture where people are able to actually acknowledge where some mistakes have made, been made around conduct it's really challenging, but again, I think it's where the solution lies. Um, and so, as a leader, you need to you know need people to know that you're you have a bit of that humility. You're you're willing to take on board that maybe you know that 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 unintentionally you've perhaps led someone to feel offended, or you've stepped over a line in a meeting, or you're shutting people down without them realizing, and they're feeling they're feeling you know sidelined. Um, I think that's, you know, so certainly something like, you know, com that, that confident humility. And, and I think another really good one is, is and it's a good tool for anybody really to, to deal with discomfort is, is curiosity. You know, remember to, to always be curious about what you're listening to and what you're hearing, even when it's kind of really getting at some of those nerve points for you and being able to sit with that. Um, and I think that's where the idea around sitting with discomfort does come into this sort of place. It's it's how do you sit with some of those conversations, not react, but respond in the way that you know you know you need to without shutting it down and trying to get away because it just feels all a bit too bad. So people need tools to do this well. Um, they need those 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 you know those intrapersonal skills, those personal skills to be able to manage some of the emotionality around all of this, but then also those interpersonal skills in terms of how to communicate well. And of course it, you know, we, we need to know how to say it as well as how to hear it. And, and there are different ways to say something. And so being able to use some good, you know, some good principles um, around assertive communication, for example, is absolutely critical. The way we frame it is going to make a big difference in terms of how it lands for somebody. Thanks, Brock. I think they're really powerful concepts, um, the idea of confident humility and curiosity. Hmm. I I just wanted to pick up on something which I think you've alluded to earlier in this discussion when you were talking about uh, the the Royal Commission and the idea of lower level conduct, which might be 
suggesting that there is a culture or an issue developing. That's one of the issues that that is particularly difficult, I think, for us in this space, which is what is the threshold for the type of conduct uh, that organisations should be responding to and, and how can they know? What I mean by that is some conduct which isn't, for example, clearly bullying or harassment, but might point to a trend of, of incivility or poor culture. Is there an easy way to find or articulate that that line or that threshold of the type of conduct that should be eliciting a response, even in the absence of what we would understand to be a complaint about unlawful or unacceptable conduct, you know, which doesn't necessarily reach that threshold? It's a good it's a good question, and and I think um, I mean let me let me let me answer it by by suggesting that perhaps it's not about drawing lines at all, um, because I think it's really really hard. I mean I think there are, you know there are clear code of conduct um, issues. You know it reaches that it reaches a threshold. There's a clear sort of code line there where you can say look this is now past the threshold and and you know but but as you get down into that gray area stuff um drawing a line it, it it's sort of very very hard to know where to draw it and i think that's where instead of drawing lines and i think sometimes the sort of the sort of work that gets done in this space is all about saying you know getting people to identify where's the line where's the line and i, I actually don't know that's always i think i think thinking is through those things you know could this be considered as sexual harassment, for example, you know, do I need to think about this? I think that's really important. But then, really, what you need is building building around that 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 capacity for people to have that conversation. Um, and and I, and I think you know it's really important to distinguish that conversation that I'm talking about here from, say, a call out culture. You know, it's not about calling out because people have stepped over a line. It's about raising an issue and saying, look, I'm not sure I feel too comfortable with this, but it's a two-way process. And perhaps at the end of that, I might have moved my position, even as the person who's raised it, I might say, okay, well, look, maybe I've been misunderstanding something here. And now that we've got that clarified, I feel a bit better about that. Um, it, it's a two-way process, a two-way conversation. And I think if you've got that happening early and preventatively, um, you know, you don't need to draw those lines because people are drawing them in their relationships with each other. They're making sure that they feel comfortable and they're able to do that. Again, it's not easy. Uh, and people don't do this naturally or intuitively and they step away from it frequently because it's uncomfortable and, and we don't like conflict. Um, but I, I, I do think it's really hard to draw lines when you really what you're talking about here is is the grey. You know, it's a whole lot of grey stuff, you know, and, and what what might be uncomfortable for me might not be uncomfortable for you. And does that make it right or wrong or which side of the line is that on? I don't know. Um, and that's where you need that that constant kind of process where people feel that they can be open and honest with each other around these sorts of issues. Um, but again, you know, you couldn't pick a, a harder set of issues to be open and honest about really when the, 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 those ones sitting in the ethical space. Um, uh, but, but I think it's still, it's still where we need to be heading. And this might be a really unfair question to ask you based on those points, Prof, but I, I just keep coming back to if if I'm, you know, being asked to join a board, if I'm, mm. um, you know, thinking about joining a, an organisation and these issues are important to me, yeah. um, do you have any kind of ideas around the types of questions I should be asking or or what I should be inquiring about to really get a feel for that cultural piece? 
Well, I think, you know, what initiatives have people got going in the organisation to really try? I mean, I mean, firstly, do they understand this? Do they, do they understand what this is all about and why it needs to be there in the first place? Do they understand what, what you know, what the applied concept of psychological safety is in terms of not just not just dealing with, you know, some, some process-related, you know, issues, but also dealing with these interpersonal issues as well? And, and you know, what are the kinds of strategies... Um, activities they've got going on in the organisation to try and uplift that and support it, um, both in their people and their teams, are they committed to that? Um, I think, you know, you're also going to hopefully see this as, you know, right throughout the employee life cycle where these sorts of values, the, this this sort of expectation is continually enforced right from when people, you know, step into the uh, to the organisation to as they're moving through those, those um, various stages and becoming leaders as well, just constantly reminding people of the importance of, you know, how do you do this? What are the skills you need uh, to create that kind of culture? And, and and leaders have an oversized influence, obviously, on that, in part because of their, their power. Um, so I think you just want to, yeah, I mean, I think you can get a sense of very quickly, uh, are organisations actively trying to achieve this kind of culture? And what are the kinds of steps they're really taking? Or is it just, you know, it, 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 is it otherwise, um, you know, just something they're saying but not really doing? Great answer. Um, well, thank you so much, Brock. Mel and Tim, the usual hosts, usually close each episode with an interesting or quirky fact from the world of ESG. Um, so I have uh, done some Googling, which I'm a little bit worried about saying in front of a professor. But I picked up an article on NPR uh, talking about, uh, I guess, the the power of empathy, but also the evolutionary power of tears. So there was an article published on NPR recently which quotes Jesse Beering, who directs the Institute of Cognition and Culture at Belfast University. Yeah. He speaks of the power of empathy as being fundamental to pretty much everything we do, from forming close relations to living in complex societies, and I read in parentheses, and, and forming healthy workplaces. Uh, Bering says that those of our early ancestors that were most empathetic probably thrived because it helped them build strong communities, which in turn gave them protection and support. Within these communities, he says, tears could be powerful tools. They did more than just signal vulnerability. They were perhaps a way of keeping social and reproductive bonds strong. Maybe good cries were survivors. Crying seems to elicit compassion and guilt, he says, and that itself may be an evolved mechanism to save relationships in distress. I wanted to draw today's podcast to a close by thanking you for your time. It's been a really engaging discussion. Um, and thank you, Drew, for joining me. Um, and we look forward to all of you listening. Thank you so much, Brock. Thank you both. Enjoyed it. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.